bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines a new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing applause. doing i hope you are well welcome to another episode of the musical man welcome benny thank you again for your hard work each and every week benny you're a fantastic person and that's why i'm gonna treat you with a little bit of information about a little show called hats hats the musical hats the musical is a show that i have learned about in recent weeks and i am you know low-key obsessed with it mainly because it's called hats The musical. Now, it's not a proper Broadway show. It's not even a full-length show. It's a show for children K through third grade, I believe. I believe it runs 20 minutes. But look, we're going to get all of that information in the press blurb, the logline of this show. Benny, can I get some fun hat music underneath all this? Uh, Yes, thank you very much. That's very good, appropriate hat music. Now, let's get this, let's get this little press release... Grab your hat, it's time to party! Hats of all shapes and sizes take over the stage when a group of milliners help hatless Hank find the perfect hat. Clever rhyming script and songwriting explore all kinds of hats, their uses, and the people who wear them. A surprise awaits the audience when Ima Milliner appears in her own remarkable, stupendous, contagious hat of all hats. Discover that it's not the hat that makes a person special, but what's underneath. From hilarious to heartwarming, this 20-minute musical for young performers in grades K through third entertains and educates with five original songs and a script featuring over 30 speaking parts. Benny, thank you again for indulging me. Thank you for the hat music. And, you know, I'll just say this as a little as a little follow-up. This will wrap up our opening segment for this week. Uh, you know, I, I have so much gratitude for so many people in this world. Benny, Patty, my boyfriend Chris, my friends, my family, the listeners, my musical minions. Of course, I'm grateful for you. I love you all. Yes, I love you all. And uh, to this one person, I say I do not love you. You and that person uh, that I say I do not love you too is Shane Gillis, who has been in the uh, news cycle this week. Shane Gillis is a recent hire to the television show Saturday Night Live. Hopefully, by the time this episode comes out, he will have been fired from that little television show Saturday Night Live because Shane Gillis, if you're not aware, is a horrific, racist, homophobe, sexist, a provocateur, as he would he would classify himself as such, I'm sure, according to his awful, uh, you know, statement, his, his non-apology in regards to his horrific comments made on a, a podcast of all things. I take great offense that the podcast medium... <laughs> 
<laughs> had to be dragged into this. Uh, Shane Gillis is a nightmare person, and I, if I had my way, if uh, if I was in charge, if I was in charge of the zoo, how would I, how do I put this? I would ensure that he never works again. He wouldn't, you know, take to Kickstarter or GoFundMe. He wouldn't take money from alt-right fascist domestic terrorist wannabe prick white straight male cis piece of shit fucks. He wouldn't ride that wave of I'm being censored or I'm a conservative voice, this, that, and the other, this, you know how, you know how, come on, everybody knows what I'm talking about. People lose one job and they somehow manage to make fucking hundreds of thousands of dollars off the backs of fucking feeble-minded troglodyte idiots. So we we started with some (laughs) bouncy fun about hats, and then we closed this segment with a fiery condemnation of Shane Gillis, who should never work in any capacity. I'm not even talking about the entertainment industry. If you throw around racist and homophobic bullshit, fucking racial epithets, homophobic slurs, you're a piece of shit. That's not comedy. Go fuck yourself. You don't deserve to work ever again in any industry. And that's how I choose to use my platform. <laughs> now, I can assure you, we will be shown the traditional show facts. Show me the show facts. But for the moment, I would like to offer a timeline that tracks the evolution of this week's subject, that being, of course, applause. But first, let's take a sip of five, six, seven, eight coffee. After all that ranting, I feel a little parched. Come on, Betty, raise your glass. All right, cheers. <laughs> ah, it gets me every time that five, six, seven, eight coffee. Vitamins is what it has. You know, have you been hearing about this? It gives me a pep and a kick is what it does. So let's get this timeline regarding applause, shall we? Let's, let's begin in May of 1946. Mary Orr's short story, The Wisdom of Eve, is published in Cosmopolitan magazine, though it is not advertised on the magazine's cover. Instead, the cover boasts the title of another featured story, that being, What's So Funny About a Drunk? January 1949, a radio adaptation of The Wisdom of Eve, starring Claudia Morgan and Marilyn Erskine, airs as part of NBC's Radio City Playhouse series. Congratulations, Eve. Stay up there. Yes, you'd better stay up there. I know you just heard a clip from the radio adaptation. Well, I, I do want to play a little bit. I, let's extend that out. Let's see what comes just right after that. Can we get the full version of that little segment, Benny? Congratulations, Eve. Stay up there. Yes, you'd better stay up there. Next week on Radio City Playhouse, the bleak and tragic story of Martha Hillman, an overweight, homely girl who missed everything that most women get and which all women want. We hope you'll listen to Machine next week on Radio City Playhouse. Good night, everybody. Oh boy. The 1940s. The success of the radio broadcast results in 20th Century Fox expressing interest in a film adaptation of The Wisdom of Eve, and Orr sells her story to Fox for a cool $5,000. October 1950, All About Eve, starring Betty Davis and Ann Baxter, is released in theaters. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. 
Though Orr does not receive an on-screen credit, she is awarded for her work by the Screen Actors Guild that same year. July 1951, Cosmopolitan publishes a sequel to the original story, which bears the title More About Eve. This time around, the magazine's cover does feature Orr's name and story title, along with the following headlines. Summer Houses Anyone Can Own, Advice to Honeymooners, and The Truman Plan to Make Eisenhower President. 1964, Orr and her husband, Reginald Denham, adapt the wisdom of Eve into a stage play. Year Unknown, Charles Strauss and Lee Adams of Bye Bye Birdie fame hit upon the idea to adapt All About Eve into a musical, but 20th Century Fox refuses to lend them the rights to the film's script or title, which explains why the musical was never called All About Eve in the first place. Undeterred, Strauss and Adams manage to secure the stage rights to Orr's original story, effectively sidelining Orr and Denham's own adaptation. Sidney Michaels is brought on to write the musical's book, while Strauss and Adams handle the music and the lyrics. Lauren Bacall becomes attached to the project, and it's at this point everyone decides that Sidney Michaels' book isn't really up to snuff. So they remove him from the equation and bring in Betty Comden and Adolph Green of Singing in the Rain and On the 20th Century fame, among many other credits. Comden and Green update the setting of Aura's story from the 50s to the swingin' 70s, bringing in new characters and plot points to accommodate for the fact that they still can't pull from the 20th Century Fox film. Surprisingly, Fox does come out of the woodwork eventually to announce they will be offering the rights to the All About Eve script after after all, but it doesn't have much of an impact because the musical is already so far along in terms of its development at that point. However, one new song is added in light of Fox's change of heart, but more on that later, later, my musical minions. Cut to 1970, applause premieres on Broadway. Cut to 1979, Orr and Denham's play adaptation finally premieres off-Broadway. I have absolutely no idea if it's well-received or how long it runs. 2008, applause is staged as part of the 2007 New York City Center Encores season, and it stars Christine Ebersole and Aaron Davis. 2019, a second play adaptation written by Ivo Van Hova and starring Gillian Anderson and Lily James, premieres at the Noel Coward Theater in London. Fasten your seatbelts. It's gonna be a bumpy night. Now it's time for those traditional show facts you've all been craving. Show me the show facts! Oh, applause was the 1970 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical when all was said and done. It officially opened on Broadway on March 30th, 1970 at the Palace Theater and ran for a cool 896 performances. The book was written by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. The music was by Charles Strauss. The lyrics were by Lee Adams. The director was Ron Field. The musical director was Donald Pippin. The choreographer was Ron Field. Scenic design, Robert Randolph. Lighting design, Theron Musser. Sound design, N.A. No sound design credited on IBDB. Oh, there you go. Costume design, Ray Agahan. No, I'm not getting that right, so I apologize, Ray. And the original Broadway cast included Lauren Bacall. Let's stop right there. I have a fun quote from Lauren Bacall that I pulled from Wikipedia regarding her relationship with her role in the show, her role in the show, that being Margot Channing. So here's that quote from Lauren Bacall, quote, The Margot Channing of applause and myself were ideally suited. She was approaching middle age, so was I. She was being forced to face the fact that her career would have to move into another phase as younger women came along to do younger parts. 
So was I. And she constantly felt that the man she was in love with was going to go off with someone else, someone younger, of course, and I, too, had had those feelings. Quote, Rita Hayworth, by the by, was on track to replace Bacall when her contract ran out, but when Rita Hayworth arrived in New York for her audition, she was unknowingly suffering from the early stages of Alzheimer's and couldn't retain any of the material. So I apologize because that's a huge ass bummer. Uh, let's just keep moving. <laughs> let's just keep moving beyond that. Bacall was eventually replaced by Ann Baxter, who played Eve in the 1950 Fox film. But back to that beautiful Broadway cast breakdown. We have Len Carew, Bonnie Franklin, Penny Fuller, Brandon Maggart, Robert Mandan, Robert Mandan, Leroy Reams, Ann Williams, Beal, Beal. Come on now, Jonathan, Bill. It just says Bill. <laughs> You're psyching yourself out at this point. Bill Alsbrook, John Anea, Ray Becker, Howard Call, Alan King, Mike Masita, Carol Petrie, and Tom Urich. Tony Nods, the show was nominated for Best Actor in a Musical, Lynn Carew, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Brandon Maggart, Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Bonnie Franklin, and Penny Fuller, two separate nominations in that category. Best Scenic Design, Robert Randolph. Best Costume Design, Ray Agahan. Agahan. Ray, I apologize again. Best Lighting Design, Theron Musser. And the show won Best Musical, Best Actress in a Musical, Lauren Bacall. Best Choreography, Ron Field. And Best Direction of a Musical, Ron Field. Eleven nominations, four awards at the end of the day. At the end of the day, we have more awards. Let's talk about the plot. Now, I'm going to go off the top of the old dome when it comes to laying out this plot. I have this all written out, but I should say that I wrote it all out off the top of my own dome. My dome. I relied on the dome, I do say. Are you with me? I'm not relying on Wikipedia this time around. You know, I'm not just doing a, a vague transcription of the Wikipedia summary, my own take on that. No, no, no. I wrote this myself based on my own memory. This is going to come at you fast and loose, so just uh, get ready is what I'm trying to say. All right, so Margot Channing, she's a star, baby. She's a star. She's been in the business of shows since she was 19. Everyone knows her name, and tonight is the opening night of her latest play, Friendly Arrangement. Not a great title, but come on, it's Margot Channing for crying out loud. Backstage, everyone is a buzz. Buzz, buzz, honeybees, I do say. Why, there's the producer, Howard Benedict. And look, there's the playwright, Buzz Richards, alongside his lovely wife, Karen. Say, is that Margot's gay hairdresser and all-around yes-man, Dwayne? Dwayne, you lucky so-and-so. All of these people are proud to say they're good friends with Margot, but only one man has the privilege of being her lover. That would be the play's director, Bill Sampson, hashtag nepotism. Bill and Margot have been toying with the idea of marriage for some time now, but on this night, Bill's already got one foot out the door. He's headed for Rome, baby, where he'll be shooting a big Hollywood movie. Margot is despondent. She loves Bill and does not want him to go to Rome, as she tells him several times. But to Rome, Bill must go, and he cannot be swayed. Oh, Bill, don't you know this is Margot Channing we're talking about? She's a star. As everyone is commiserating in Margot's dressing room, Karen brings a mousy, awkward young woman into the mix. Her name is Eve Harrington, and she's been an ardent follower of Margot's career for quite some time. She's seen every preview performance of Friendly Arrangement. You can always catch her skulking about the stage door, so you know she's a fan. Why, she even claims Margot saved her life. Is this possible? 
The Broadway sophisticates in the room are skeptical of this small-town hick, but their tittering is silenced when Eve tells her story. Turns out her husband died in Vietnam, which left Eve in a total state of shock and despair. It was only when she saw Margot on stage that she finally came to life again. Margot, having had her ego thoroughly stimulated, invites Eve to join her and Dwayne as they hit up a gay bar in Greenwich Village. Dwayne's all, oh, but I have a date, Eck. You should be going to your big opening night party, Eck. And Margot is all, shut up, Dwayne. A fun time is had by all, and they wind up back in Margot's uh, penthouse. I'm pretty sure it's a penthouse. Eve expresses her gratitude to Margot, and Margot happens upon one of her old movies while channel surfing. She can't help but wonder if Bill wants to marry the Margot of today or the young beauty of the silver screen he fell for so many years ago. So in essence, Margot barely registers that Eve is making the whole night about her because she's already too busy making the night about her. Margot's a bit much, is what I'm trying to say. We eventually get to a point where Eve has become Margot's indispensable assistant. Sure, Eve does weird shit sometimes, like pretend to wear Margot's play costume while bowing to a non-existent audience. Sure, Eve does weird shit sometimes, like call Rome to wish Bill a happy birthday. Eve's weird, but it's not as if she's an... Or anything? I mean, come on, that would be a crazy thing to think. Margot likes her. Until Bill returns to the States, that is. Bill has moved heaven and earth to ensure he can edit his big Hollywood film while staying in New York. But Margot can't help notice. He, uh, she can't help but notice. How chummy he's become with Eve. She hates it, hates it so much, she goes out of her way to ruin Bill's homecoming party. Oh, Margot, 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 Margot. What are we going to do with you, Margot? Well, Bill knows he's what's going to do. Bill <laughs> yeah, Bill knows what he's going to do, I should say. He's going to leave Margot. While Margot is experiencing a minor mental breakdown, Eve is going out of her way to make sure she becomes Margot's understudy in friendly arrangement. This pisses Margot off to no end and convinces her all the more that Eve is out to wipe her from existence. Margot's like, don't you see, Eve is an Doesn't anyone see it? But no one's buying it. Buzz and Kate come to resent Margot's caterwauling so much that they take Margot to Connecticut and drain their own gas tank so they can't get back to New York in time for the show. As a result, Eve goes on in Margot's place, and what do you know it, she ensured the critics were in attendance. You know, maybe she isn't. After all... Everyone adores Eve's performance, and suddenly it looks as if everything's coming up Eve. Margo, Margo, Margo? No way, Jose. From here on out, it's all about Eve, 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 Eve. In a fit of largely unearned confidence, Eve hits on Bill and immediately strikes out. She then sleeps with Howard, the producer, before starting an affair with Buzz, the playwright. In short, Eve is either sleeping with or trying to sleep with everyone but Dwayne, who never trusted her in the first place. Dwayne does hate he knows what's going on in your skull, Eve. Why, you know what you are? You're an... Oh, 
<laughs> Long story short, Margot winds up throwing her career out the window so she can be a housewife to Bill. And in an astonishing twist, she advises Karen to wait for Bill to come crawling back to her. And Karen takes the advice. Karen, for God's sake, drop Buzz and get yourself a real partner. Or better yet, do your own thing. Be single for a tune. For a change. Come on. Margot, your advice is bad. I'm not saying you're an... But you're not helping anyone. You want to stay at home and make lasagna? Fine, but don't put everyone else in a cage. You think Bella's going to stop being a director so he can spend all of his time with you? <laughs> not bloody likely. You're not millionaires. Somebody's going to have to work. And Eve? Oh, well, you know, Eve becomes subservient to Howard after he pops her in the mouth and reveals that he knows all about her sordid past. Specifically, that her husband never died in Vietnam and is, in fact, still very much alive. The lesson, if you want to live a happy life, settle down with a good man and give up the glitz and glamour. For any woman who falls for the allure of glitz and glamour is destined to become an I remember the whole plot and wrote it all down without consulting Wikipedia. Take that, Wikipedia. I'm kidding, Wikipedia. You're my everything. Never leave me. My general takeaways from this here plot, well, for one, it feels like there are way too many men crowding my shit at all times. Now, I realize there's actually an equal number of key male and female roles, but the men are, they just feel like they're everywhere. It's like they're rats or roaches, and none of them interest me. Dwayne is intriguing because he's a gay man in a piece that never mocks his sexuality, which is nice, but he's also a total blank slate who only cares about getting Margot to bed on time. More tea, Margot! You're her hairdresser, Rasputin! Get the life! To be fair, the women don't interest me much either, though I am roused to a certain state of ire when reflecting on their respective fates. Margot abandons her career, and Eve, this cannot be emphasized enough, is physically abused and all but forced into sexual servitude. Howard is like, BAM! Now wait for me at my hotel, you mendacious sack of shit. Not great, Bob. I certainly hope the 2019 adaptation has something more substantial to say about how women relate to each other. Uh, I mean, one can only hope, right? Oh, shit, you know who I forgot about? See, this is why I need Wikipedia, because I forgot all about Bonnie and the Gypsies. Yeah, so Eve and Howard, at one point, go to a local hangout spot for gypsies. You know, gypsies, dancers who move from show to show, like gypsies move from camp to camp. Come on, don't be offended. It's an inside joke among dancers. You wouldn't get it. You couldn't possibly know what it's like to be a gypsy. But yes, Bonnie is a character in the show. Bonnie is dancer. Bonnie sings song about applause. Bonnie have hair. And then later, after Eve has found success, she snub Bonnie and gypsies. Bonnie not happy about this. Bonnie not happy, no, no. Bonnie think Eve is... And you know what else I forgot about, Jesus Christ? The framework device. Applause opens at the Tony Awards with Marco presenting an award to Eve. We then flash back to everything I've already described, but here's the thing. We never wrap back around to the Tony Awards. We instead bring the curtain down on Margot and Bill's happy ending, which leads me to think the Tonys take place after their reconciliation. But why would Margot go to the Tonys if she's out of the business? Has she been nominated or is she just 
us presenting that award to Eve. Oh, please, Margot, come and present this award to Eve. No, that doesn't make any sense that she would want to do that. And is Eve still under the thumb of Howard at this point? Or did she manage to kill him and get away with it? Now that's a story I want to explore. Eve killing Howard? Killing Howard, a new series from the BBC. Sure, why the hell not? For the record, I'm still amused by the fact that Woman of the Year utilizes a nearly identical framework device. If you're going to write a musical for Lauren Bacall, it has to open at an award ceremony, and the entire show has to be a flashback. It's the law. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1970 original Broadway cast album. I don't have a strong connection to this album, but I recall listening to it more than a few times. I'm not really sure why, though. While touring with a Shakespeare company, that was a rough year for me. Tough year, rough year. So perhaps I needed Lauren Bacall to serve as my temporary life raft. But in hindsight, it really wasn't worth me dedicating as much time as I did to it. But more on that later. I also, of course, watched the 1970 Tony Awards performance of the song Applause, the titular number from Applause. This performance served as the opening of the broadcast, but you'll only get to it after sitting through a laughably protracted bit of name dropping. Everyone's here tonight at the Tony Awards. With Jack Cassidy, Lauren Bacall, Clive Barnes, Michael Caine, Noel Coward, Claire Bloom, Lynn Fontan, David Frost, Gary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, Alfred Munt, Patricia Neal, Maggie Smith, Robert Stevens, James Stewart, and Barbara Streisand. Amelia Bedelia, Oscar the Grouch, Santa Claus, Optimus Prime. By the way, did you hear Arthur Lund's name in that clip? Oh, by the by. Oh, Arthur, come over here and take a bite of this Texas avocado. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Fun fact, Shirley MacLaine was a host that evening, and there's a Shirley MacLaine joke in applause. Yeah, world's colliding. But yes, this performance, it's... It's long. It's very long and kind of annoying. And at one point it comes to a screeching halt, so the cast can parody about a dozen other better Broadway musicals. Can we get that, Minnie? shit arduous. And those were the best bits. We cut out some of the more clunkier bits. Don't make me wish I was watching Cabaret, guys. I I initially thought these gags were cobbled together specifically for the Tony's broadcast, but no, they are a part of the show proper. Yeesh! And then finally, I watched the 1973 CBS television adaptation, a television special that is available in full on YouTube, though I will say the audio and video are not the greatest, unfortunately. This special stars Larry Hagman of I Dream of Jeannie and Dallas, uh, fame? 
eh, we could forego the term fame in this instance. We don't need to be throwing it around like it's meaningless. <laughs> I think we'll be fine. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep that for ourselves. Sorry, Larry, you're not going to get that. According to one YouTube comment, Ed O'Neill of Modern Family and Married with Children. No, Jonathan, resist the urge to say fame again. You're falling into this structure. God Almighty, get it together. So Ed O'Neill is apparently a leather daddy in the gay bar scene, but it's not listed on his IMDb page. Big surprise. And the video quality is so bad, I couldn't really confirm it for myself. Look, maybe it's Al Bundy, maybe it isn't. The world may never know. What I do know is that the word bitch is dropped a lot in this script, and it got old real fast. A lot of women describing themselves as bitchy, and a lot of, a lot of instances where women call other women bitch. Not great, not great. While watching the TV special, I came to the realization that Friendly Arrangement, the play that is written by Buzz, directed by Bill, produced by Howard, starring Margot, this play within a musical that we are forced to hear about, this show is uh, bad. Quite a bad play is what I would think. Uh, here's the scene Eve reads when auditioning for the understudy role. I feel fed up with being on display. An ornament, a Tiffany glass bottle with nothing inside. There is something inside. What do you want? Nothing from you. I found someone who held that bottle up to the light, rubbed it in the right places, said some delicious magic words, and out popped the genie, me. And I'm never going back in. I like it out here. It was it was like hearing my play for the first time. Oh, Mr. What the hell is going on in that scene? And this is supposed to be a comedy? Okay. Best Bad Line Runner-Up. So this is the runner-up for Best Bad Line. I felt the need for some reason to double back and explain what the hell I was even uh, talking about. So here's the clip of the runner-up for Best Bad Line. Starting tomorrow night, we have the Reeves apartment. Matching keys. His and hers. You may not like the paintings too much. Lots of little orphans with big eyes. But I guess we won't be looking at them much. And just to give my own reading of that, you may not like the paintings too much, lots of little orphans with big eyes, but I guess we won't be looking at them much. Uh, Buzz, worst pickup line in the world. And the winner for best bad line is... Well, the kid here couldn't guess you with Freud. I wonder if the kid would mind checking to see why Rudy the Omelette Man isn't here. And here's my reading of that. I wonder if the kid would mind checking to see why Rudy the Omelette Man isn't here. Rudy the Omelette Man. I've heard of Milkman and Fireman, but Omelette Man? Give me a break. The YouTube upload of the TV special is followed by footage recorded from the Sci-Fi channel, which is amazing. We get a clip of Dark Shadows, followed by a Carol O'Connor... <laughs> a.k.a. Archie Bunker, a Carol O'Connor anti-drug ad and a commercial for a psychic hotline. Then Wes Craven appears to say, hello, I'm Wes Craven and you're watching the Sci-Fi Channel. Fuck yeah, I am Wes Craven. Baby, 
be perfectly clear, I find Strauss and Adams' score to be pretty forgettable. Most of the songs in Applause are formless, puttering or clanging about in a fog when they should be focused on producing significant hooks, punchlines, and character insight. It's a C-plus on the very best, most generous of my days, and now that I've gotten that off my chest, I don't run the risk of repeating myself later. Huzzah! Backstage Babble has a pleasant, catchy enough melody line running through it that it's catchy. But I kind of resent the number's lyrical gimmick, the game it's playing here. In the context of the show, this is the moment where everyone is crowded backstage on the opening night of Friendly Arrangement. They're all dying to express what they thought about the play, but their observations are so banal that, get this, they're expressed via genuine blather, babble, one might say, nonsense talk. I don't see this game producing any laughs. It's surface-level satire. There's not a hint of a bite to it at all, so why bother? Why go to all the trouble of writing music and arranging it for an orchestra when the song has little to no impact? Ah, come on! This is Strauss and Adams talking, by the way. Ah, come on! Lighten up, it's a goofy party song! Yeah, well, my attention is being flushed down the toilet, so congrats on losing it so quickly. We just caught out of the overture, guys. Fair warning, I've been in a bad mood this week, and I'm doing my best to not let that seep into my analysis of applause. But you can rest easy knowing this is not a kiss of the Spider-Woman scenario where I wind up liking the show at the end of the day. That ain't it, kid. That ain't it, kid. It doesn't help that I so recently had to sit through City of Angels' equally trite show business shindig sequence, or that none of this material can compare to, you guessed it, Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along. Everyone thinks they can try their hand at sending up the entertainment industry, but very few can actually make it entertaining. Sondheim? Yes. Strauss and Adams? No. Cy Coleman and Zippel? No. That's the lesson here. I don't want to go, but planes come back, you know. Think how it's gonna be when we're together again. And then we get this clunker of a ballad known as Think How It's Gonna Be, which sounds like it belongs in a Vegas nightclub, not a Broadway venue. Applause is supposed to be a star vehicle for Lauren Bacall. How can you give the first solo to Bill of all characters? And why is his solo such a gin-soaked snooze? At the very least, Strauss and Adams could have written a duet that explored... Bill and Marco's love for each other? Something along those lines? But now, why do that? Give the song to Len Carew and force him to sing like a cut-rate Bob Goulet. That'll work. I should say Applause does feature a duet for Bill and Margo, but it comes much later and is a moldy, apple-cheeked rehash of You're the Top from Anything Goes. It's so lame, I'm not even going to talk about it. So there. Back to this song, though. There is a lyric... <laughs> I'm just going to quote this lyric. I don't want to go, but planes come back, you know. That's the kind of crummy crooner stuff I'm talking about. It's technically memorable. It's stuck in my mind, but only because it's so dumb and falls so flat. If you have a medical degree, please come to Chicago. Surgically remove this lyric from my brain. I don't want to go, but planes come back, you know. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, the song was cut for the purposes of the TV special. I'm sure it has more to do with trimming down the runtime for broadcast purposes than the song being, you know, a minor soap bubble fart in the wind. But I like to think Larry Hagman was like, nah, I'm not going to learn that stupid song. Look at me, I'm the star of I Dream of Jeannie, and I'm going to be the star of Dallas. I wear military uniforms, and I will eventually wear a big white cowboy hat. I'm not going to do this subpar Baba Booey Crosby nonsense. Come on! 
Alive is so obviously the best song in the show. It's like Adams and Strauss are hiding in it, praying this one bop will allow them to ride out the rest of the evening. Sure, the rest of the show is kind of smelly, but what about that But Alive number? Ah, you know you like that. We still got it, babe. Eh, arguable. <laughs> Debatable. But Alive kind of goes on forever and becomes a little obnoxious in the process, but Bacall's raving like a loon and barking out notes like a hound dog, so I can't really complain. She's an absolute maniac in the TV special, all limbs akimbo and bug-eyed as she avoids subtlety at every opportunity. If you watched the TV special, I would turn down the volume on your end because God knows Bacall never did on hers. Lauren, you're on camera. You think I don't know that? What is it that we're living for? Applause, applause. Nothing I know brings on the glow like sweet applause. You're thinking you're through that nobody cares. Then suddenly you Somehow you're in charge again And it's a ball Trumpets all sing Life seems to swing And you're the king of it all Cause you've had a taste of The sound that says love Applause, applause, applause When I was eight, I was in a school play I'll never forget it I had one line to say. My big moment came. I said, what hold the prince? My sister applauded. I've been hooked ever since. To reiterate, But Alive manages to justify its length because it's a showcase for Lauren Bacall. Audiences didn't flock to applause because they were dying to see a musical adaptation of All About Eve. They bought tickets because they wanted to see Lauren Bacall on stage. We love Bacall. She's a hoot and a half. So if But Alive wants to indulge in an extended dance break and one too many repetitions of its chorus, I can allow it. I'm a generous musical man. What I cannot allow is the show's titular number being such an egregious chore. I basically can't stand Bonnie and her gypsy dancer pals. They're a bunch of loudmouthed theater dorks who exist within a vacuum. I never learn anything about them. I can't possibly care about them. So why am I being forced to sit through their manic, sweaty talent show? Enough. Can someone explain to me why Bonnie Franklin's character is named after her, by the way? Bonnie Franklin is Bonnie. Is she playing a version of herself? Whatever the case may be, I... Uh, this is gonna this is gonna sound so mean, but Bonnie is a drag and a half. She is the embodiment of the word squee, a preening cabbage patch doll come to life. And the actor they got for the TV special, who I believe was from the show's West End cast, is even worse. They put that poor woman in overalls. Overalls! And why is everyone obsessed with applause in the first place? Applause is largely perfunctory. Actors don't necessarily treasure applause above all else. You know what's better than applause? Laughs, gasps, words like bravo, encore. At one point in this number, some random gypsy dude stands up and is like, This one time, I had a line in this cool play. My sister applauded. It was quite the scene. And when that happens, you think, Oh, okay, so we're gonna hear from other people, right? 
more mini confessionals, sort of a proto-chorus line thing. Nah, nope, we, we, we do not do that. We do not get that. Uh, that one guy talks, he sits down, and we never hear from anyone else. Why did I have to listen to that Claude's bad story in the first place? I'm being too hard on this show. I... <laughs> I realize that. I don't like it. I don't like the show, but I should probably rein myself in a bit. Retract the Ravenclaws, me. I'm a Ravenclaw, you know. Pottermore said as much. Hurry back. Hurry back. It's no life at all when you're not here to hold me. Hurry back, hurry back What's the point of doing crazy things When you're not here to scold me, honey Hurry back, hurry back When I get you here, I'll give you so much love You'll never leave me All right, now we're talking. Hurry back is a number I can sink my teeth into. Here we have Bacall in a gauzy, mournful haze, sitting in the dark with nothing but an empty glass to comfort her. It is the one moment where we are allowed to see Margot at her most raw. She's lonely, she's depressed, and I love it. Let's open that up, explore what's really going on in Margot's head, and find out what makes her tick. Eh? What's that? We need to move on? You're afraid if things get too somber and serious, everyone will revolt? Oh, fine. But before we move on, I have this to say. I like how this song starts out nice and slow. This is the song Hurry Back, I should say. Bacall sounds appropriately hoarse and bleary-eyed and, well, drunk, and she's wallowing in each thickly coated phrase. I like that a lot, actually. I want to sit in the shadows with her. There is dramatic value in this sort of grim stillness, and I think a lot of people can relate to being lost in such a mood. Eventually, the song whips Margot into more of a frenzy, which is fine, but I always expect it to come full circle and end where it began, with Margot receding back into a position of defeat while quietly repeating that phrase, hurry back. But it doesn't. I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but I am the musical man, and I must air my grievances. My claws are not out. That's in your seat belts. It's gonna be a bumpy night. Eh, 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 eh. She's laughing a bit too loudly. That's how the last one began. I figure she's two drinks from the spot where you know what hits the fan. Don't take off your coat. You came the wrong night. Get out while you can. Mother is uptight. Fasten your seatbelts. It's gonna be All right, now my claws are out. They're back out. All right, okay, so this song stinks. I mean, it is actively kind of embarrassing. I was listening to it while waiting for a train to take me home after work one day, and the grimace on my face, you should have seen it, Ronald would have had a field day with this grimace. Strauss and Adams only wrote Fasten Your Seatbelts after 20th Century Fox granted them access to the 1950s screenplay, and boy howdy does this feel like a hasty attempt at capitalizing on that deal. Quick, my 
boys, to the piano. We have to run this iconic 10-word line into the ground, and we gotta do it by five. All joking aside, the fucking honking in this, there's, there's so much honking. And I think it's cruel to make actors honk. That's dumb. No one can make that work. Here, watch me try. Fasten your seatbelts. It's gonna be a bumpy night. Stop it. No honking. It's bad. What? She's no longer a gypsy. She'll be leaving us soon. She did the understudy to the rescue bit. Now she's halfway to the moon. She's no longer a gypsy. No more equity calls. She's gonna get them crazy invitations now to Truman Capote's balls. Have a beer, your last one, dear. From this night on, it's all champagne. The star was late, oh, and I was great. Oh, you got up early and pulled a Shirley MacLaine. I'm no longer a gypsy. Put me on the marquee. It's out of the chorus into heaven time. It's just heaven, it should only happen, God, let it happen to me. She's no longer a gypsy, she'll be leaving the street. Hey, she's a regular mitzi gainer now, don't you love them dancing feet? to revisit Bonnie and the gypsies in their dopey little restaurant beatnik hideaway or whatever the fuck it is. Oh, get, oh, got it, got it. Okay, great. Now put your hands down. Now, show of hands, who here cares what Bonnie or any of these people, these twerps, think about Eve? No one? Oh, okay, I'm not seeing any hands. No hands? Oh, fabulous. Thank you for your participation. She's no longer a gypsy, skirts dangerously close to having something to say about the jealousy artists feel when they witness others succeed. But why turn over an interesting idea like that when you can have everyone blurting out faux fossey catcalls? Fame, fortune, autographs, money, money, gimme, gimme. There's nothing I want more in these scenes than to get up, walk out of the gypsy restaurant, and go literally anywhere else. Give me a song about anyone else. Dwayne, I want to hear from Dwayne. Give me Dwayne the Musical or give me death. In all seriousness, Dwayne probably should have gotten a solo, right? Dwayne doesn't get a solo. Remember that Halloween when you were nine? You wore a fairy queen costume of your own design. Well, look at you now. And you put on and lipstick though it wasn't allowed you were so proud and daddy said wash your face you look like a whore that's what he said no more and so you went upstairs washed your face took off your dress threw it away got into bed as though it were the end of an ordinary day and outside the moon 
continue to shine Remember that Halloween when you were nine Well, damn you, Daddy Look at your little girl now! and bitchy and manic calm and collected no sign of panic she's alive she's alive so alive I'm one halloween cracks me up for a couple of reasons for one thing it serves as this revelation of eve's dark motivations which boil down to my daddy called me a whore on halloween and i've been cursing his name ever since When Eve says, well, damn you, daddy, that's straight up camp. I don't know if it's meant to be camp, but if anything is camp, it's that line. I'm obsessed with how Eve is talking in, uh, is it third person here? Remember when you were nine, Eve? She's talking to herself, and it always throws me for a loop. Then there's the moment where Eve exclaims, that's what he said. I got chorus line chills all over again and had to remind myself that no, applause couldn't possibly be ripping off a chorus line because (laughs) applause premiered a good five years before a chorus line. It's still an odd coincidence, though. At the Ballet is all about the hardships that inform a woman's adulthood, and Eve is wrestling with similar demons here, the key difference being that the characters in a chorus line feel like real, multifaceted human beings, whereas Eve is merely an... A scrapbook full of clippings of things long forgotten. There's something greater. A picture in the paper that makes you look rotten. There's something greater. The meaningless attention, the bowing and the smirking of some head waiter. And empty feeling The nights that you're not working I know there's something better I know there's something greater There's needing to be where she is Waking up and there she Here's 
here's what I don't like about the show's finale, something greater. The heteronormativity of it all. If the TV special script is any indication, the show takes a light stab at addressing slight changes in gender norms. With Bill, you know, Bill insisting that he doesn't want Margot to give up her career so she can be a housewife. Very much in line with the conversation Woman of the Year has later on in the 1980s. Okay, great, fine. So Bill doesn't want Margot to change, but he can't be her safety net either. Margot's ego is too frail, she's always in need, and that can be exhausting. I get it. So why do I get the sense that Bill and Margot are fooling themselves in the show's final moments. What exactly has changed that justifies this reconciliation and makes it worth celebrating? Margot suddenly wants to make lasagna. That's her big turn. And Bill... I mean, what is Bill's turn? What is his plan? He leaves Margot like three times throughout the course of the show's timeline, so why come back now? He never explains himself. It's as if the show has pulled him out of the ether City of Angels style. Poof! Magic! Bill's back! Happy ending! Are they gonna live in the suburbs? Is Bill gonna sell real estate? This whole situation reeks of impending doom. But here's what I do like about the finale. That simple, lovely harmony you heard as Bill and Margot come together to sing the song's title. It's a sweet pinch of flavoring in a show that all too often feels simultaneously bland and bloated, and I was grateful for it. Am! Am grateful! We also get four bonus tracks, but unless you're a fan of Charles Strauss banging away at a piano and singing off-key, I would avoid them. The first bonus track is an early demo of applause, and the others are songs I presume were written for the show and eventually discarded. I can see why they were discarded. No offense, Mr. Strauss, no offense, Mr. Adams. Writing a musical seems arduous and kind of infuriating, but, uh, yeah, this ain't it, Chiefs. This shit, it ain't on fleek. Would I give it a dab? I would not, my chiefs. That's it for our deconstruction of the applause score. Now we're going to hear from our sponsors. Five, six, seven, eight, coffee. A word from our sponsor. Five, six, seven, eight, coffee. Grammar is important. Let's take it away. Five, six, seven, eight. Ugh, I'm so depressed. All I want to do is write one song, but I can't write one song, cause I'm all frustrated. Oh, oh, oh God, you scared me, oh shit. When did you get in here? Oh, the door was unlocked? Oh, fair enough, whatever, I don't care. It's me, Roger, hi, from Rent, hi, whatever, fuck you. Oh, I'm so upset. You came at the exact wrong time, my dudes and dudettes. I'm trying to write a song in this stupid guitar. Oh, but tuning it takes forever. Come on, guitar, work with me. Oh, I apologize, I'm in a bad mood. You have to understand something. I'm real frustrated. I got songwriters blocked. All I want to do is write one song, Gloria, one song before I go, before I leave this earthly plane. And when I get like this, the only thing that can bring me comfort is coffee. That's right. How'd you know? How'd you know I was going to be talking about 5678 coffee? What are you, some sort of witch? I'm going to tell you right now. 5678 coffee, it keeps me going. I got two brain cells clanging together in my head, and coffee is the only thing that keeps me awake. I've been awake for 4,800 hours. That's true. I haven't been able to write a single song, but I've seen 4,800 sunsets. Oh, let me clear my throat. Five, six, seven, eight, coffee. I like it cold. I like it cold. I like it bitter. I like it black. 
No additives, baby. Just straight black five, six, seven, eight coffee. Freezing cold in a loft filled with spiders and cobwebs. You know, my friends, they say to me, Roger, you need to get out of the house. My girlfriend, Mimi, she says, you know, Roger, you got to get out of the house. And I say, shush. The only time I go out of the house is when I go down to the corner bodega and I get a can of five, six, seven, eight coffee. You know how much money I have in my pocket? I got a dollar and two Abraham Lincoln coins. That's all I have in my pocket. And I'm going to be dedicating each and every cent of that money to five, six, seven, eight coffee. Look, you're going to have to go because uh, this loft is not fire spruf. <laughs> yeah. And let me just tell you right now, there's there is a high chance that you will die in this building. So I would advise you to leave. Get out! I'm an emotionally unstable white straight man and I demand that you leave me. But come back anytime, babies. Dudes and dudettes, I'll sing you my song. Come on, five, six, seven, eight, coffee. I'm filled with you. My stomach is filled with your juicy goodness. Let's write this song. We can count on it. Why won't this tune, stupid guitar? Final thoughts on applause. To be perfectly frank, I don't have any additional thoughts about applause. It's a C plus on its best day. I've already said as much. If you're in the market for a Lauren Bacall vehicle, zip ahead to the 1980s and give Woman of the Year another whirl. It's so much better, and it isn't working puts the entire applause score to shame. Now, a 1970 applause won the Tony Award for Best Musical, of course, and the other nominees that year were Coco and Pearly. I have zero reference for Coco, and I'm only familiar with a few of the songs from Pearly, so it is with a heavy heart that I must allow applause to keep its best musical medallion. For now, hopefully Coco or Pearly will come along and boot it out of the spotlight. I mean, God knows I love Pearly's Walk Him Up the Stairs and He Can Do It. Those are damn fine songs. You know what? I changed my mind. Give me that medallion applause. I'm handing it to Pearly. For now. For now. You never know how the winds may blow. In terms of ranking the show, I'm going to place applause between City of Angels at number 19 and Sugar at number 21. That's right. Applause. You get our number 20 slot. If you want to get a full breakdown of our current ranking, go to Musical Man Pod on Twitter, and there is a pinned tweet you can click. You will access a Google Sheet, and I believe it is the second tab. Go to the second tab, and you will see that full breakdown. When it comes to show-related ephemera, I did find a clip of Christine Baranski singing Welcome to the Theater as part of a Kennedy Center Honors broadcast, but it's not especially interesting. Don't get me wrong, Baranski is a delight and her voice is fantastic, but in my heart I know I long for something weirder, something more random. If you know of this elusive ephemera, if you if you have something related to applause that's, that's what I'm looking for, something strange, please let me know. I will say there is a cut to Lauren Bacall during this Baranski performance, where she seems deeply unenthused, which I found to be kind of funny. Miss Bacall, how did you enjoy Christine Baranski? What's a Christine Baranski? Now, normally this would be the point in the show where we take a ride on the musical carousel to determine what show we discuss next, but we recently had a listener take me up on one of my many offers. Jada wrote a five-star review via Apple Podcasts that reads as follows, Miss Saigon, more like Blast Saigon. 
gone, and as a result, they have earned the ability to stop the musical carousel and determine what show we discuss next week. Their selection, the 1978 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical, which ran for 1,604 performances, Ain't Misbehavin'. We had two other listeners write Miss Saigon more like Bless Saigon reviews, so their picks will be announced in due time. If you go to Apple Podcasts and you write a Miss Saigon more like Bless Saigon review, you will earn that ability as well. That's true. That's true. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to figure out how you can support the show financially. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you donate one dollar a month, you will get a verbal shout out each and every week. Thank you very much to Jordan, Ashley, Chris C, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. If you donate a dollar a month, you'll also get special bonus episodes dedicated to the 73rd Annual Tony Awards and the first trailer for the Cats film. If you donate three dollars a month, you will get a musical shout-out in the style of a character or composer of your choosing. If you donate five dollars a month, you will be able to determine, aha, you might, this might sound familiar. If you donate five dollars a month, you will be able to choose what show we talk about on the podcast. Oh, so many ways to tell me what to do. Oh, two ways specifically. And you'll also gain access, if you donate $5 a month, you'll gain access to the first season of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera. And if you donate $10 a month, you will gain access to the Snub Club, a special series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Our latest subject, which will this episode will drop on the final Wednesday of September, that episode is going to be dedicated to It's a Bird, It's a Plane, it's Superman. Donations go toward cast recordings, movie rentals, and offsetting Podbean costs. And if we ever get to a point where we bring in $100 or more in total monthly donations, I will produce M3, the movie Musical Man, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of musicals that are tied by a common theme. Once again, please go to Apple Podcasts and write a five-star review if we ever get to the point where we're bringing, we have uh, seen 30 people write five-star reviews. Uh, I will produce the, so many, uh, again, so many checks just out there that need to be cashed. I will produce a special episode dedicated to the Disney Descendants franchise, that trilogy of films. You can stream the show at musicalmanpod.podbean.com or Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thank you to Benny in the booth. Thank you to Alex Green for our logo and Zach Little for our music. Oh, and you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting, come the time for parting. Oh, well. We'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf and good night. between your kids and drugs any way you can if you want to save the kid's life. I can't believe it. <laughs>
She knew all about me, and all I told her was my name and my birth date. It was amazing. She saw me back in school, and I just sent for a training course. She told me that I had got a promotion on my job, and that's true. And the sample reading is free. One of the most incredible things that she asked me was if I had a fear of water. And it's true. It's like they've known you your whole life. I just planned a trip to Europe this summer. This is really true. She said I'd meet a tall Mediterranean man. I asked my psychic about children in my future, and she saw two, possibly twins. When I asked my psychic about the relationship I'm in now, she said not only will it last, but it's going to a higher level. Get your free 10 minutes now from Psychic Readers Network. Get the free time you need. Call now for 10 minutes free. PRN has the best psychics. You get a great reading, and it's free. Why do you think I let you call from my house? Get your 10 minutes free. Call now. Call 1-800-376-8465. I'm Wes Craven, and you're watching the Sci-Fi Channel.